This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. AI pioneer Sandra Carrico joins Ledge in this fascinating episode where she recounts the early days of AI, the early 80s AI winter, and the dawn of computational linguistics. Now the VP of Engineering and Chief Data Scientist at Glint.ai, she works daily with the company's ML systems to refine the patented algorithms that she invented to extract data from documents such as utility bills, insurance claims, and medical records with better-than-human accuracy. Sandra delivers fascinating insights into how she turns problems into solutions with a mix of mathematical know-how, coding experience, and management skills. Sandra, it's great to have you on. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun. So if, if you don't mind, um, would you give a, you know, a two or three minute introduction of yourself and your work? I want the audience to get to know you a little bit. Sure. I'm the VP of Engineering and Chief Data Scientist at Glint.ai. Glint liberates data that's trapped in documents, but we also respect the corporate data governance requirements that a lot of uh, enterprises have today. What I like to call it is your data, your models. Um, I developed a novel machine learning algorithm, um, and using that, we get about 98% accuracy, and we only require around seven examples to train. Um, This system is offered uh, via SaaS, Um, and that the, this whole b- business started as a problem where we wanted to free programmers from writing code to extract data from utility bills. Um, we knew that this thing wasn't going to scale very well and very um, cost effectively. And so I started to bang my head against a wall to figure out how we could more effectively and more inexpensively extract this data from utility bills. And what ended up happening is I accidentally stumbled on a solution that would extract data from all kinds of invoices or lab care records. Um, and that's where we are today. It's, uh, it's, a, it's kind of fascinating how big an idea this turned into. And you, uh, off mic, you, you talked about, I think this is fascinating that, you know, you were involved in, in AI going qu- quite a ways back and, you know, that uh, you you saw the rise and fall or so you called it the AI winter of the 80s. And, you know, just how, maybe tell some of that story and, you know, how that informed your thinking pattern. So, so we have a lot of people now interested in, I guess, you know, sort of, AI 2.0, right? And that, you know, everybody wants to get involved with this now. And and we have speakers on our, you know, counter and our fridge can automatically order stuff or whatever. But knowing some of that history, maybe, and and that thinking pattern, um, you know, that kind of informed your process to to solve big problems. I, I think that's just super interesting. Yeah, so um, so I took a bunch of classes in grad school. Um, I was at Bell Labs, and they had a program there where they'd send you away to school for a year, and they paid everything. It's like I got new parents. That my my new supervisor or dad would call me every week and ask what I needed, and he'd FedEx anything I wanted, <laughs> and I could take any classes. And so I took a lot of math, um, a lot of statistics, um, and I also took AI because that looked kind of interesting. And in one of the classes, um, I worked on um, genetic algorithms. And since I had my own computers, because I was really, really well supplied from Bell Labs, um, I was able to just run genetic algorithms. And because I had the math background, I could see that it should work. 
but I could, I also could see um, that it wasn't converging fast enough. So it was clear that the machines of roughly 1986 were not uh, sufficiently powerful to allow this to converge. And at the same time, I was in a seminar, we were looking at neural networks and how those all worked. And, um, and people were starting to get this inkling that maybe those wouldn't converge either. Um, and when you say converge, but, just for the, the uh, anybody who doesn't sure. know, what, what is the convergence or what the, the concept that you're talking about? So basically, you know, what you want to know is that the thing is going to produce a model that's going to produce a good answer all the time. Mm. And what was happening was that I was training these models, but they were just producing garbage. Mm. So the answers weren't getting progressively better. And that's so just that, the that's nature what, of uh, raw compute power, you know, that just, you just couldn't do enough or powerful enough to, to get there. That's exactly mm -hmm. it. There just wasn't enough cycles. Mm -hmm. um, I ran my genetic algorithms experiment for like three weeks straight and um, it wouldn't, you know, it got a little better. But it was clear to me I was going to have to run this thing for years. Right, right. And so that was, you know, not the world of what now we have, like, what, exoflops or something crazy like that? So, exactly. Yeah. So we, we couldn't converge. And then strangely, as an undergrad, I was at Northwestern. And at Northwestern, they had a, a lot of people doing computational lingu li linguistics. Mm -hmm. And so I was involved in a lot of that. And so I learned a lot about how to break down um, sentences um, and how to – uh, do grammars. And that, of course, fed into a lot of my machine learning, uh, my uh, compiler work, because we did language. Right, right. That. So is that, um, is that going to be what we call like it NLP It wasn't directly now? related, but let's just say it didn't hurt that I knew how to look at English. <laughs> right. Um, and so I did a lot of stuff around linguistics um, in that area as well. Oh. So, uh, so yeah, so I was in undergrad, um, and uh, it happened at Northwestern. There's a lot of work around computational linguistics. Uh, and so what I did was uh, I learned a lot about how to break down sentences and find nouns and so on. And uh, that was very helpful um, because that was kind of the direction that a lot of AI was going in at the time. But then there was a nuclear win uh, there was the winter. And so we didn't do much more of that. So is that what we became? Uh, now we, we hear about NLP a lot. Is that? That's right. That okay. was some of the early work in NLP. We had isatries um, and parses. That's right. Okay, so all that starts to converge, uh, but there's this winter. So you, did you stop working on it? And, and by maybe you should explain what the AI winter was because you know I I don't want everybody to think all Terminator here. <laughs> yeah. So what happened was um, I can't remember the, the the professor's name, but somebody declared that AI would never work, and everybody else decided to believe that person, and so AI work stopped. And I don't huh. remember exactly what year it was, but let's call it eighty eight, eighty nine, ninety, somewhere in there. And the and, idea was, was this, was this yeah. general AI will never work or narrow or like, was there any conception there? Um, I did. I don't recall the exact no. statement. Um, cause okay. I wasn't really there for that part. <laughs> right. Um, but it was just, you know, everybody agreed to stop looking at AI and machine learning hmm. right about that. Okay. Um, and so, so did you go do something else? Or? Yeah. So, um, well, actually what happened was I went to grad school and Bell Labs paid for me and then they, they brought me back and they actually had me building routers. Think Cisco routers, except it was Bell Labs routers. Uh, and so I went on to do, to learn a great deal about software engineering and how to run uh, development organizations and research organizations and do technology transfer and um, all kinds of do good research. So I, I basically developed a very deep general um, background 
in software engineering. In fact, I was there for some of the earliest um, work in agile programming. So I was one mm -hmm. of I kind of was figuring that out before agile exists existed. Um, my friends were teaching me extreme programming before extreme programming existed. Um, so all that stuff was being developed. So I had this great foundation for when this opportunity uh, presented itself, you know, the not so distant past. It was, it's been several years, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how, how did all that, uh, I guess different kind of convergence, but you know, like so much has, has changed over that time. And I can completely imagine you know, just my own journey that the fundamentals, you know, sort of build up over time and, and you, you know, you're prepared because of all that work to solve a future problem, um, you know, in your own brains, pattern matching, you know, and all that, it just comes from experience. I mean, but the technology, like the stacks and all the stuff, I mean, do, do you have in the back of your head, you know, oh, good, you know, now we have enough compute power to do this. So, you know, like, yeah. hey, we can do things now. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, in fact, Actually, the way I was kind of taught to do computers, which is not kind of the way it seems that they're teaching people now in computer science, is that um, I was taught to look at it far more abstractly. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't look at languages. I look at language capability and what, um, what they allow easily and what they don't allow easily. Right. At, basically at the language level. They're kind of like uh, right tool for the job kind of idea. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So... Um, so, so to me, the changes that we've undergone are simply differences in um, emphasis that people mm -hmm. have chosen over time and what kinds of things they valued. So we valued different things 20 years ago than what we value now, right? 20 years ago, we cared a lot about how much memory we used and we wanted to optimize um, CPU performance above programmer performance. Mm -hmm. Now we care much more about programmer performance. Uh, so we have much more uh, powerful statements, things like Python, right? Yeah. Python wasn't really possible a long time ago. It, it just would have been too inefficient from a compute point of view. It had been a nice prototype. Right, and we can continue to add sort of layers of abstraction because we have the ability to continue to abstract, you know, with greater uh, technological capabilities and compute power. That's right. And we didn't have good search back in the day, right? Mm -hmm. Now we have very, very powerful search. I mean, Google just couldn't exist because there wasn't enough compute. Um, and the reliability of the uh, devices wasn't enough. Even now, it's, it can be very stressful for Google to keep running because um, disks fail at a, a pretty high rate when you start to multiply those. And mm -hmm. they're constantly having to create infrastructure which is resilient to those failures. So um, we had to build a lot of infrastructure in order to get to the point we are now. I mean, Stack Overflow didn't exist, and now it's fantastic, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, so much right. more productive with Stack Overflow. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, the idea that you can uh, sort of multiply your access to answers, you know, that you don't... Um, but I think you're right, and, like, it, it sort of harkens back to that idea that, you know, there is nothing new. You know, there's just sort of new implementations of the same thing. It reminds me of, like, what you just said is very, uh, I don't know, like, anthropological, you know, looking back to you know through it's just different views on the same thing with you know sort of a little more icing on top every, every couple of years yeah there, there's more icing and more capability so we that's ex like what you were saying with abstraction is exactly the right idea what we're doing is we're we're in encapsulating more and more capability and we're providing just single interface points to those and right. as we produce more and more capability we're able to build things up 
Um, I remember when I, um, I, I hired a, a guy to, to glint. Um, and when he came on, he was shocked at the rate of productivity we had. Um, because what he was seeing was that we were producing in terms of functionality as much as a hundred person team, you know, 10 years ago would have, would have been able to produce, but we were doing it with like four or five people. And it's just because so much stuff had been encapsulated and we were able to start deploying things um, at big chunk levels mm-hmm. and the interfaces work. Whoa, partner. We interrupt this here podcast for a special message from Gun.io. Here at the Frontier, we do things a little bit differently. Sure, you could hire unvetted remote engineers from some of those other sites, but here at Gun.io, we have the most comprehensive vetting process in the entire freelancing industry. And we can present engineers to you within 48 hours. Now, you wouldn't choose a horse without taking it for a ride now, would you? Well, head on over to gun.io slash podcast and your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Well, that one's on us, partner. That's gun.io slash podcast. And that's interesting because it gets to the sort of the organizational abstraction, right? You know, that uh, one thing I've noticed is that, you know, if you if you dig into architectural patterns and sort of, you know, just design paradigms, you know, they the, the organization starts to resemble the code and or vice versa, you know, in the same way that the, the sort of dog resembles the owner and vice versa. Yes. You know, we, we built organizational constructs because we needed to break code up and then we called it microservices, you know, so that we could get more stuff done. Um, the pendulum kind of swings the other way too. And then you start to like sort of re-conglomerize, you know, your, your stuff back into larger chunks. I imagine you've seen that in practice, you know, sort of over and over again. Well, actually, microservices are interesting because um, we used to have those a long, long mm-hmm. time ago. And we called them subsystems. Mm-hmm. And we said that they had defined interfaces and everything else was encapsulated. And so um, I think people now who are producing these microservices haven't seen them before. But for myself, it wasn't a big deal because I looked at it and I went, microservice looks like it because i basically said here you know we started getting bigger and bigger problems in glint right. glint is a huge system it's, it's very complex and i said you know when i used to design really large systems i would have made this a subsystem and this a subsystem and they're like oh well and we had microservices mm-hmm. but i hadn't completely appreciated them and i'm like and they're like well we'll just use a microservice i'm like that's perfect and we'll put an api on it i'm like that's exactly what i want mm-hmm. but we didn't design the uh, engineering to match the microservices because we didn't need to. So we kind of stepped it forward because we had um, experience, at least at the managerial level, with this kind of paradigm. Right. So I didn't feel compelled to – it wasn't such a hard leap for me to understand what was happening. So we actually – didn't structure this, uh, the assignments according to microservices. And you could probably get away with that too because of the excellent sort of design choices, right? <laughs> that that you didn't have 50 engineers, you had five. Exactly. Right. So you didn't and, have a team for every service. Exactly. And I didn't need to because I'm able to, because, you know, I think part of the reason that organizations um, may be building up these giant structures around microservices and isolating people, which, you know, isn't a bad breakdown depending um, but if you've seen this before, 
you you can it's not so hard to climb that curve, right? You go, okay, I've done this before. There are other ways I can do assignments besides, okay, you're siloed here, you're siloed there. Well, that gets to, you know, it's a good point. It's a, okay, now you have this learning and it's, it's super valuable because a lot of people getting into the field right now, you know, just simply haven't done it before. So what are those best practices? Like, how did you make choices that were good and prevent yourself from falling into the same hole that you knew you could fall into because you did it 20 years ago? Yeah. Um, well, I was, remember, I was very fortunate because I came after a long stream of people had been designing software for 20 years before me. Mm-hmm. So um, when I started, I was being indoctrinated into how to build things. Um, so that's, uh, so I avoided a whole ton of problems. Um, well, but yeah, I mean, so now you're the giant that everybody else has to stand on the shoulders. So please, you know, help out that's here. Right. You know? That's right. So, so yeah. So I mean, but it's the same thing that we learned in school, right? What you want to do is have isolation of of functionality, right? Mm-hmm. You want to have defined interfaces. You want things to not break the paradigm, right? Right. That's, so you, you know, know to respect the black box. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, we haven't, that hasn't changed. So right? do that, that but it, it, is it not done rigorously enough? Because you hear disaster stories, you know, all the time as software gets more and more complex, it gets more and more rife with, you know, just absolute collapses. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, again, that's been going on for a very long time. Sure. Um, and it will collapse if you don't respect the um, the abstractions. I think that a good respect for abstraction is really critical for a successful software uh, solution. That's a perfect tweet um, right there. We're going to use that. So, <laughs> so, uh, so is that uh, is that the most critical thing? You know, respect for abstraction. Uh, you know, can you can you point to that and say, you know, the, hey, that's the that's the key. Well, I mean that that certainly helps. Right. Um, right. It, it. I don't think that, you know the other thing is not reinventing the wheel, which is very um, cliche. But we use a lot of software that already exists. Mm-hmm. Um, because those companies that are deploying software for backup restore, business continuity, continuous integration, all those items, right, they have, out of necessity, because of their corporation, they have a defined interface, and they've hopefully hopefully have fixed all the internals so that it actually works. Right. And so by using these piece parts at very high levels of granularity, so you get like, kaboom, an OCR engine drops in, kaboom, an API structure drops in. That allows you to get a huge amount of leverage, right? And, and, and you know, um, I think of those as yeah. you know macro services. I mean, it's really the same thing. You're just completely abstracting a major component of your system upstream or downstream to you know another provider. And of course, That's of right. course, which also comes with you know now we're all hosted on Amazon, and you know, God forbid anything happens to Amazon, and you know it all goes down. But um, you know, there, there seems to be an acceptable level of upstream and downstream risk that goes into that design calculation. That's right. And so what I try to do is outsource all of the functionality that some other company provides, right? right? I just want to use their stuff. And the only thing I want to make is are the few things that provide value to my customers that make me distinguished. And even doing that and being very um, re- religious about it, we still have a huge, huge amount of software to build um, in machine learning. Um, I mean, it's become enterprise software, you know, again, in terms of the amount of infrastructure that you have to have in order to field something that 
a corporation can use. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that's a whole, geez, we could go on for hours about that. But um, exactly. You know, like, let me, let me ask, you know, sort of as we have to run out of time here, but right. think about uh, if you would, you know, what to your mind, I, I say this, that we're, you know, we're in the business of evaluating and, and vetting and certifying, you know, sort of just excellent engineers. And, and we, we do that well. And there seems to be a very high success rate. So we're proud of that. And yet I'm never too arrogant to say, you know, okay, every guest, I want to know, you know, what are your heuristics to measure, you know, just an A plus engineer that you want to work with on your software? So I look for, uh, this shouldn't be surprising. I look for their ability to abstract. I, I ask them questions about how they solve problems. Um, and I try to find out how well they thought about things from an abstract point of view. Now, that doesn't mean I don't hire people who can't abstract, mm-hmm. right? Um, because there's some people who just know the tools really well. DevOps, for example, not a high abstraction job. Uh, that's a know all this stuff, be good with Stack Overflow, cool and understand. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Understand how things fit together. Right. But know where on the abstraction level that job is. Sure. And then figure out, you know, and then figure out how fast that person can learn. Mm-hmm. So do you have a problem where you can just hire somebody, they already know it? They they the the entire problem is well defined and um is is well defined. In that case, great. Just hire the person with the key buzzwords who knows that and don't worry about learning, don't worry about abstraction. Just say here's your job, do it. Right. But most jobs aren't that way. And most jobs don't stay that way. Understood. Excellent. So I, uh, before we wrap is I have my fun lightning round. Are you ready? Oh, sure. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Good, good. Yeah, we're on the same team. (laughs) Um, What what are you reading right now? Um, Sapiens. By? Um, I can't remember his name. We'll have to look that up. (laughs) Yeah. What, what can you absolutely not live without? Music. Excellent. Excellent. What is the last thing that you Googled for work? Um, Aurora on AWS. (laughs) Nice. Okay. I don't know if you're a fan of the office, but there's a classic episode of the office where Jim in the office, he's, he's messing with Dwight who is sort of the office heel and um, he's sending him faxes from future Dwight and he's messing with him. He's saying the, the coffee is is going to poison you and things like that. And Dwight has a fit. So this got me thinking, you know, I said, what if I gave you a piece of paper, one piece of paper and a Sharpie, what would you fax to yourself 10 years ago? Oh, a piece of paper and a Sharpie 10 years ago. So 10, that's 2008. By the dip. By the dip. <laughs> well played, well played. <laughs> We'll include a we'll include a stock chart for anybody who doesn't get it. So, <laughs> excellent. Well, Sandra, this is fun. Thank you so much. Uh, I love the love the insights. Love the learning. Um, we'll have to come back and and do uh, even some more stuff on on enterprise next time. That sounds great. Well, thanks. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch. And we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.
Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.